We are uh, going to be turning to the scriptures and looking in Mark chapter 11 today. And uh, I'm going to read some to you from there. And I also want to read some of this uh, commentary from Lloyd Ogilvie, uh, which you've heard me speak about before. This old book from the 1980s, I think it is maybe, uh, Lloyd's, Lloyd Ogilvie gives a commentary on the Gospel of Mark here called Life Without Limits. And the chapter that deals with this passage we're going to read today was probably the best chapter in the book so far. It's all, it's all amazing, and I love the way he writes. And of all the commentaries that I've ever read, I must say, I think I enjoy this one the most, um, just for his style of writing. But um, I, I wish that I could have Lloyd Ogilvie himself come and preach what he preached in that to you guys today. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just read it, read the whole passage. And then I thought, well, no, God still wants to speak to you guys in the language that you've gotten familiar with here. And he can use me uh, to say a few things, too. But I am going to read a portion of it because it's just so eloquent. Um, we're going to look at uh, one of the uh, living parables that Jesus performed. And really, it's probably one of the most difficult to understand. Of all the things that Jesus did, it's one of the most difficult things to understand. And uh, maybe you've wrestled with this in the past. It's that cursing of the fig tree. Have you guys uh, ever encountered that in the story? As you read through the Gospels, you come across this and you think, wait a second, what in the world is that all about? And uh, we're going to talk about that today because it is profound. <coughs> the, uh, the portion that I'm, I'm going to read uh, is actually skipping some of Mark that we haven't done yet. We may talk about it another time. It's the triumphal entry. We are actually in the season of Lent right now, I believe. Is it? Didn't we have Ash Wednesday last Wednesday, or is that coming up? It is Lent right now. And, uh, and so we're kind of preparing for the triumphal entry, uh, at least in terms of our, our, our historic you know, read through the scriptures. And so Mark chapter 11 speaks of the triumphal entry, and maybe we'll save that for the week that we have, you know, Palm Sunday. Uh, so I'm going to skip over that. But contextually in Mark, uh, Jesus is heading into Jerusalem, and this is for the Passion Week. He's actually going to now fulfill that which he was born for. He is going to pay the price for our sin. And uh, he has his face set and his heart set, and he is uh, en route to this uh, absolutely horrifying death. And it just astonishes me how brave and courageous Jesus is as he heads into this. Now, I understand Jesus is all God. He's also all man. He's the, he's the, the, the mystery of this incarnation, that he is entirely, 100% human in all ways except for our sin. And yet at the same time, he is God made flesh. So 100% God. He's not a lesser version of God. He's not a mini version. He's not a shadow of God. He's not a representation of God. He is God. And, uh, and that's the, the mystery of the incarnation, which perhaps uh, is hard to really put into words. But understanding that he is God and he's almighty and, and all of that, at the same time, his humanity on display here, uh, it's profound how courageous he is to head into something so absolutely awful that you and I would run from every time. And no matter how brave you think you are, uh, if you knew that you were going to march ahead to your death in a 
very cruel and very horrible way, and there was an easy route of an escape for you, I think you would take the escape. That is built into our nature, you know. Fight or flight. And uh, if you're not going to win the fight, you fly. But Jesus is courageous and he heads right into this. We talked about it last week, about how God uh, demonstrates that the victory comes through confrontation with evil. And uh, running away from evil does not defeat evil, but confronting it does. And Jesus shows us what confrontation looks like. He goes right into it and doesn't turn away. So the triumphal entry is profound for that reason. But I want you to read with me in Mark chapter 11, verse 15 and onwards. It says, they came... Uh, no, let me, let me read verse 12. Uh, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in, a distance, in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Okay, that's the, the passage we're going to read. Now, there's a matching passage in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, in, the, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, it's not a matching passage, but there is, a, there is a parable that Jesus tells which relates to a fig tree that's in a vineyard and, uh, and it's not producing fruit. And the master of the vineyard wants to have this fig tree uprooted because it's just taking up space. And the vine dresser says, listen, let me take a little time to uh, dig around this fig tree and let me you know, just fertilize this thing and give it another year. And, uh, and if it doesn't produce fruit next year, then let's get rid of it. And, um, and so this parable is about, is about uh, nurture, nurturing things, but also the, the firm uh, warning that uh, taking up space without being fruitful is not part of what the master has planted that tree there for. And, uh, and obviously the tree represents something. 
and we're going to figure out what that tree actually represents today. But for those of us who've read through these passages, it's possible to see ourselves as the fig tree. Most, I think most everybody see themselves as the fig tree that is or isn't producing fruit. And uh, so these passages are rather terrifying. Uh, anybody with me on that? Okay. Well, today we're going to take a look at it and we're going to see if we can undo some of the unnecessary fear that you have with regard to this, but then at the same time bolster some of the godly fear that you have at the same time. And um, that's my intention. A couple of things that are important to note. The, uh, the, the, the imperative from Jesus in verse 22, you can just underline in your Bible or take a highlighter and marker and just mark it up. It's, it's, it's probably one of the most profound imperatives in all that Jesus said, and I want you to make sure you take this home today with you. Are you ready for it? Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Take a highlighter and highlight that. Have faith in God. And, uh, and Jesus goes on then to make a, a promise about prayer. And a, and, and, a, and a declaration about the power of faith, which has also been largely misunderstood and has been misunderstood certainly by me, uh, maybe also by you, with regard to what is God promising and what is he not promising, what can we actually do? I, I have heard this teaching about speaking to mountains and casting them in the ocean as uh, regards uh, pretty much any obstacle in my life or any difficulty that I'm going through. And, uh, and the... the uh, the way that I've read the scripture is you can speak to your obstacle and cast it in the sea by the name of Jesus and it will be gone. How many of you have heard that teaching before? Anybody? I think there's some validity to that. However, that's not the key uh, that's going to unlock this passage for you. I don't believe that that's contextually appropriate. I think that there's a better meaning and perhaps this will liberate you from some of the, the, the anxiety that you have over mountains that did not move into the sea. Because like me, you probably have a few of those in your life. Things that you wanted God to get rid of. And you spoke out in the name of Jesus. And you were bold. And you, were, you, know, you, you, you refused to speak negative words. And you held on to that positivity. And you spoke into the situation. And mountains did not move. Well, we need to undo some of the false teaching that we have with regard to obstacles in our lives. Let me just go ahead and nail it right now and say, God never promised you that you would not go through difficulty. Okay? So let's all take stock. Becoming a Christian does not mean exemption then from pain, loss, difficulty, death, or all of the above. Coming to Christ does not mean exemption so that you can relax and have a nice life. Coming to Christ is what we do because we're sinners. And we need to be saved from the second death. We come to Christ because we know that we will be punished eternally because we're guilty. We come to Christ because Christ is the only one who offers eternal life. Subsequent to believing in Jesus, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Because Jesus said, I go to be with the Father and he will send a helper to you. And for those of us who have put our trust in him, who have called upon the name of the Lord in earnest and believed upon him who God raised from the dead, 
We have been saved. And for those of us who have sa- are saved, we have been given the deposit, the down payment, the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in us, within us. The mystery is this, that in Christ, God came to dwell with us. In the Holy Spirit, God comes to dwell in us. You understand? And soon we will be united with him and we will live with God. And this is the trajectory of all of our faith. But the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And in the empowering of the Holy Spirit, he has given us fruit for our lives. If we will listen to what God says and obey it. Now, let's make it perfectly clear. To listen to the Lord is good. But to listen and obey is life. To listen to the Lord and to disobey is most assuredly death. To listen to the Lord and to ignore is perhaps to delay the inevitable. You may hear good words and for a moment think about them. But if that seed does not get planted in the fertile soil of faith within your heart, the cares of this life will take it away. The troubles of this life will take it away. Satan himself will come and take it away. The thorns will grow up around that and it will choke you out. If you listen and do not obey, the gospel will have no value in your life whatsoever. It is important then that we not only hear, but that we do. Do not be hearers of the word only, but doers, Jesus says. So knowing this then, it seems to me important to note that the Holy Spirit who dwells within us invites us to produce fruit for his kingdom's sake. And what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Maybe some of you remember this because you've taught it in Sunday school to little ones again and again. Maybe some of you remember it because you were in Sunday school and you can recite the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Maybe some of you have never heard this in your lives, in which case, let me introduce you to a beautiful passage in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 is just full, chock full of amazing, beautiful, and wonderful promises from the Lord. But in verse 22, you find the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Let's see if any of you can remember without turning there what the fruit of the Holy Spirit is. What's the first one? Love. Good on you. What's the second one? Joy. Oh, wait for it. These guys up front are going to get them all. You're going to have to be faster than the Briggses, okay? All right, here we go. On your marks, get set. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. There you go. Look at you guys. Come on, give yourselves a round of applause. (laughs) You guys won the prizes, didn't you? These guys were probably always the ones who got the extra animal crackers in Sunday school, I reckon. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is not, my friends, is not natural. It's not natural. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is intentional. And it is supernatural. And I'm going to warrant a guess that there's not a person in the room today who couldn't use a little extra love, joy, peace, patience, and all the others 
I wanted to guess that every one of you would like to have a little uptick in each of these areas. Well, my friends, this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is born by those who do the word of God. If you listen and do not obey, it's very possible that you and I will be like this fig tree of Jesus that had no fruit. Now, you say, Eric, I thought you told me that that wasn't where you were going. Well, it's not really. <laughs> I do think that it is necessary for us to see that. It is important for us to see that there is a responsibility for us. But there is also a deeper and more profound meaning to this story. Throughout Scripture, the Old Testament, the fig tree represents something very, very important. How many of you can guess perhaps what the fig tree might represent? Yeah. Israel. It represents Israel. Well done. You've been in church before, haven't you? You've listened to me share this once or twice. You know, after being here 20 years, it's inevitable you're going to hear at least one sermon repeated, right? Thank you, Paul. It represents Israel, for sure. The fig tree represents Israel. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the promises that God made to the children of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt and when he promised to bring them out and give them a promised land, a land they could call their own, a land where they could farm the fields and not have to give the, the, the produce to their overlords, a, a place where they could, they could have their own place of rest, they could build their homes and hand them over to their children and their children's children something that I think every one of us yearns to do, to have a legacy to pass on to our offspring. And if not our own, if God should see fit to not give us any of our own, then to others who we deem worthy and fit, who have become like children to us or grandchildren to us. And so it is that we want to give on. And God promises to give this to his children, the children of Israel. And what did he say? Well, he framed it up this way. He said, every man will sit under their own fig tree and by their own vines. This was part of the promise. The idea was you can't, you can't enjoy the fruit of vines when you're wandering through a wilderness. You're just not around long enough. As a sojourner, you're constantly traversing. You're never in the same place long enough to plant and then reap that harvest. You're there for a temporary, just super temporary time, and then you move on. But God promised that the wandering would come to an end. There'd be a place of settling. How many of you yearn for the place to settle? Anybody? We're all looking for home. The fig tree represents home. The fig tree represents the place our hearts have yearned for forever. What's the first mention of a fig tree in the Bible? Does anybody know? Yeah. Richard, you are preaching my sermon, brother. The first time we see the fig tree is in the book of Genesis. There was a fig tree in the Garden of Eden. We know this because when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they cover up with? They covered up with leaves. It's interesting, we never cover up with fruit, do we? We never cover up with fruit. We cover up with leaves. What are the leaves and what do the leaves represent? Well, they represent that tree. They could almost be kind of synonymous with the tree. Every tree has leaves, we hope. If it doesn't have leaves, it's dying or dead. Need to have leaves on the tree. If you don't have leaves, you're not going to have fruit. There's got to be something there. 
In Eden, Adam and Eve took this fruit from a tree that was forbidden. And they ate that fruit. The fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's the horrible thing about knowledge. You attain it and then you lose it. Some of you uh, have had this conversation with me recently. We study, we learn, we memorize, and we forget. Forgetfulness is a gift from God because there are some things we need to forget. But forgetfulness is also incredibly frustrating when we're trying to retain knowledge. We ate from that fruit because it promised to give us what we were missing. But instead, what it did was alert us to all that we don't know and show us that we are unable to retain what we learn. Having taken the wrong fruit, having produced the wrong fruit, having not taken the fruit from the tree of life, having not taken the fruit that God gave them, Adam and Eve then turned from fruit to cover up. And let me say to you that it is true that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is represented by this fig tree. In this passage, it speaks very specifically of the temple and the worship of the Jewish people at the time that Jesus was in Jerusalem here in the first century. It speaks of the promise that God made that has been abandoned by the religious uh, structure and, and organization that rules over the temple in Jerusalem. Before we get to that, I think the application for us today even is that formal religion, even our Christianity, when it is devoid of fruit, is never devoid of a cover-up. Bless you. Our lives have been designed by God for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Our lives have been designed by God to bear these fruits. That is what we were made for. The Holy Spirit is the power within us to make that happen. But it is possible to fabricate a religiosity. It is possible for us to not take responsibility as we ought to. And comfort ourselves that we are at least covered up. At least we look okay. I want to read to you from Lloyd Ogilvy because I think this is appropriate at this time. He says, Irresponsibility is a mark of impotent Christianity. If we hear the imperatives of Christ without purposefully shaping our life, relationships, and culture around his will and way, we will be sick. We cannot deny our nature. We were created to produce and reproduce. When we fail to do so, we wither. The reason there is so much emotional sickness in the church is that we have fragmented belief from behavior. 
Oh, I believe, we say. But how does that affect our behavior? Truly, how does that affect our behavior? The words of Jesus, the preaching of the Bible, and life together in the church only add to our guilt. Until we become responsible, the gospel will be a sword in our bones. Our preoccupation with the material struggle of life, the false self-assurance that comes from achievement, the distorted security that comes from respectability, all lead to the moral sclerosis of irresponsibility. What a statement. Moral sclerosis. Isn't that great? We have a medical student in the front row who could tell you exactly what sclerosis means. At least I hope you could. All right? You could? Okay. She's like, don't ask me to say this in front of everybody, Dad, right now, because sclerosis is where those muscles stiffen up and can't move, and it just becomes atrophied, and it can happen in any place where there are muscles. Our morality can just become this stiff sclerosis because we refuse to take responsibility to actually live out what Jesus teaches. Now, I know that this is a, this is a stern word, but it is also a liberating word, my brothers and sisters. It's a liberating word. Listen to this. He says, the result of compromise with our ideals, uh, the result is compromise with our ideals. Let me say it again. Our preoccupation with the material struggle of life, the false self-assurance that comes from achievement, the distorted security that comes from respectability, all lead to the moral sclerosis of irresponsibility. The result is compromise with our ideals. It becomes easier to make peace with social wrong, with racial injustices and political ills. But far more deadly, we give up our dreams for ourselves, our family, and our vocation. Life settles into comfortable ruts. That's what Jesus said of Israel, and that's the point of the confrontation with the fig tree. I think that there is a... Uh, there is an invitation here that Jesus gives through this to really understand that we are not called to exercise some kind of moral or spiritual dignity that the world around us looks at and says, okay, there's the church. We're not supposed to have this respectability in our behavior that makes people say, well, okay, I can understand why they go to church. They, they're good people. We're not supposed to gather our families around the family altar because that just looks good. Because, you know, good things follow behavior like that and we'll, and we'll benefit from it in some way or another. We're not invited to switch off the TV when it's too uh, violent or, or sexual uh, because that's just a, you know, that's morally appropriate. And our kids are under 13, so we should not watch that. By the way, my little pet peeve, you shouldn't watch that at all, ever, anyway. Neither should I. But it's not good enough for kids, it shouldn't be good enough for you. But, hey, you know, before I squirm myself into that little corner and then can't get out of it, let's move on. 
All of these things may look good and may make us appear to be decent citizens. Listen, participating in a parade and celebrating your local community and your local town or, or, or you know, being gracious to police officers or first responders. These are all good things. And they look appropriate on Christians by all means. Okay, supporting the, 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 the local officials and, and in as much as they glorify God to, to respect authority and uphold these things. This is all good citizenship, right? But that's not what we were called to. You were called to relationship with God. Deep, intimate, beautiful. You were called to bear fruit of joy. You were called to experience the wonder of faithfulness and the beauty of it. Not, not the expression of it, but the true core of faithfulness and to know faithfulness from a God who is eternally faithful. We weren't called to be dressed in all the gear of Christianity and never experience the power of internalizing that and then living it out. You and I, just like Israel, we were invited by God to be his special chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We were invited not to, not to check the boxes on, on all of, our, on all of the, the right things to do here and then see how we can maybe fudge the rules a little bit because, you know, we're young. Uh, or, 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 or maybe I'm old now and I'm mature, I can handle that. Or we, we, it's, This is not about trying to find ways around the morality rules that God has set up. This isn't about that at all. Leaves, my friend, that's all that is. It's leaves on a tree that's not producing fruit. The tree does need to have the leaves, don't get me wrong, but the purpose of the tree is there in the first place is to bear the fruit. Our lives are supposed to be full, not empty. When people look a little closer, you know, we look at a distance, we look at each other and think, oh, that's pretty decent. When they get a little closer, what are they going to find? What is Jesus going to find? And here's the invitation for you. The invitation is to do what Adam and Eve couldn't do. Instead of repenting and saying, oh, God, we have sinned. They put on a presentation to pretend like nothing was wrong. They wore the fig leaves for the first time and for the last time Jesus curses that fig tree. Because it's still doing the same thing it's done from the beginning. This fig tree has just been a way for them to clothe themselves with the robes of so-called righteousness because of their religiosity. And Adam and Eve are still denying their culpability and their responsibility. They are being irresponsible and refusing to take responsibility and simply bow the knee to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. The greatest gift God ever gave to you and me was the power to say, I'm sorry. That's what Jesus came to give you. Jesus embodies that. 
He embodies the power to say, I'm sorry. Here's what Jesus did. Instead of running away and covering up, Jesus went straight to the throne of justice. And there he bowed his knee for you and for me and received upon himself recompense for all of our sin. You see, he showed us the way to life. The way to life is not to run away from your guilt, but to run straight into it, to the heart of the Father, and say, God, forgive me. As you look around the room, you're looking at saints, saints of God. I want to read to you this little passage. I've got a few passages to read, but I've run out of time. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Powerful passage. Do you not know, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's not a fun list to read. And now the power of the gospel. Are you ready? Verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. <laughs> you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See that? I'm going to read it again because it's so good. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You see, the power of the gospel is not in covering up what we've done. The power of the gospel is in being forgiven for what we've done. <laughs> you understand? The power of the gospel is in finding forgiveness from God. And in finding that forgiveness, God requires that we show that forgiveness to others as well. There are people in this room who have done things that would make you say, I never want to be anywhere near that person. Well, go ahead and wear your fig leaf then. Go ahead and wear your fig leaf, O oh, you who produces no fruit. O oh, you who judges others according to the flesh. We will judge according to the flesh no longer. For if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, all things have become new. We are not the body of Christ because we live a perfect life, or because none of us have made mistakes, or none of us ever will make mistakes again. Mistake is the wrong word. We're not the body of Christ because none of us have sinned, or because none of us will sin in the future. We are the body of Christ because Christ has redeemed us. Somebody say amen. Amen. We are the body of Christ because Jesus reached in when we were dead and he made us alive in our trespasses and sins. That's why we're the body of Christ. This is the hope of the gospel, my friends. And you're rubbing shoulders with people that you would never have rubbed shoulders with 
We come from all socioeconomic backgrounds. Some of us are rich, some of us are poor. Some of us are smart, some of us are dumb. Don't look at your neighbor right now. Some of us are sinners to the nth degree, and some of us think that we've gotten away with this little white-collar things. We are all dead in our sins until Christ raises us. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified by God. You hear me? And so it is that we must set our hearts to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit at work in others. This is why the religious organization of the, the Jewish world at the time when Jesus was here in Jerusalem got this curse from God. You know, he went into that temple straight off of cursing that tree, and he began to overturn the, the, the money changes tables in the temple. For those of you who don't know what that is, the temple was a place where people could purchase the things that they needed in order to get forgiveness from God. And it turns out that it had turned more into a money-making racket than it was even a house of prayer. The whole purpose for which the temple was built was that people might have an approach to God while waiting for the Christ to be revealed, that they might, as a kind of a holdover, use the blood of bulls and goats to temporarily cover over their sin, doves and pigeons and so forth for the poor and, and bulls and goats for the rich. But it had been lost altogether, and what it had turned into was a marketplace of fig leaves and no fruit at all. And guess who wasn't allowed in there? Well, you guessed it right. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the lepers, the blind, the deaf, the lame. They were rejected from there. They weren't allowed in that place. People with blemish were not allowed to come in, lest God forbid they make us unclean. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be a tree without fruit. Or else we will be exactly like this organization that Jesus cursed. And when he said to that mountain, be thou removed, he wasn't talking about the mountain obstacles of whatever it is you happen to be facing in your life right now that's difficult. No, he was speaking about the mountain upon which the fake religion was built. He was talking about that great and high mountain that every one of us builds our tabernacle to our falsehood on is built. And Jesus said, you can speak to that. And anyone who speaks to that mountain will see that thing cast into the sea. It's time for you and me to take a stand against the fake religion that we have allowed in our homes. If any one of you is brave enough to get up and cast that mountain into the sea in the name of Jesus, then family altar can be your opportunity to do that. Not another demonstration of some religious practice, but a genuine invitation for God to enter into our homes. If we've learned anything from this COVID season, we've learned that God wants to be where we are. We had too much of a dependency on Sunday morning church service. Let's not go there too quickly again, shall we? Let's remember that God dwells with us in our homes, in our hearts. And let's remove the fig leaves, as it were, and let's cast the mountain of religiosity into the ocean. Let's learn to forgive and to be forgiven. Let's learn to demonstrate what Jesus is inviting us to do. The final passage that I want to read to you is from Song of Solomon. And this, my friends, is the crux. This is what it's all about. 
Thank you for the extra time. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Song of Solomon is best read, in my opinion, as a powerful poem about Christ and his beloved church. I know that many scholars would disagree, and that's all fine and well. But this is life. That's beautiful. And it's an invitation for you and for me to go beyond fruitless lives, leaves that look good from a distance, but are empty up close. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10, My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs. And the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff. The Hebrew says, in the secret place of the steep pathway. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. You're invited by God into this powerful and beautiful love relationship with Him. It's not about a moral obligation, my friends. That's the leaf. The fruit is in the love, the joy, the peace of knowing Him who is peace, the patience that comes when you can trust and learn to trust. Patience and endurance allow you to go through any trial no matter how hard it is. For death is not the end, but just an entryway into eternity where God will recompense us according to our deeds. So be strong and be faithful and hold fast and don't be satisfied with a religion that looks good. Press in. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this profound and amazing parable. There's so much more there, so much more. But what you've given us today is enough. I pray that these who hear 
will truly put their faith in you and will do what they have heard. Lord, let your face be lifted up upon us, your grace and your favor. May there be a smile from heaven. Bless the work of our hands as we honor you. Let your Holy Spirit come and empower us to do things we never thought we could for your name's sake. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and we ask, Lord God, that you would strengthen them in their distress. Help us to help them. We pray for your intervention. Let righteousness prevail and wickedness fail. And may no weapon formed against them prosper. Lord, let your joy be our portion here at Living Hope Family Church. In Jesus' name, amen.